Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I am ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And you know, Rick, hearing our music there at the start, did you see this video and it's been out there, and forgive me for being late to the game on this, but Don McGahn playing guitar uh, just last week... Uh, Doing uh, doing some Van Halen. Did you see this? I did not. Was was he was he singing any songs? Though? No, no. I, I, look, you know, he, he wasn't singing. So that that's you know. But I, I got to tell you, Don McGann plays a mean lead guitar, and I am not kidding. So you think he could fit in with Mike Huckabee and no, no, and this Martin is O'Malley beyond... and the all time great musician politicians? No, this is this is He's beyond better. that. This is beyond that. This is. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm telling you, man. He wow. Was and he was up, you know, back and forth on the stage. Just just. Do me a favor and Google it. It's, All right. Um, I, I, you know, you know, I don't. I wouldn't say this if it's not the case. Um, anyway, we we got to look. I know it's kind of a holiday week. We got Thanksgiving coming up. Um, you know, Congress is out of town. The president's about to go down uh, to to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, he's be, but first, of course, he's pardoning a couple turkeys, uh, bread and butter. But I got to tell you, there's a lot to talk about. There, there sure is. We we have. Fast-moving legal developments we in the impeachment block, case. Blockbuster guest coming up. Yes, one of the guys that knows impeachment the absolute best, Neil Katyal, who's the former Solicitor General under Barack Obama, wrote a new book called Impeach, Impeach. Uh, and by the way, John, there's What's also it about uh, it's subtle. It's a it's a novel. <laughs> we'll we'll talk to you about it. Uh, we also have a new entry into the presidential field this week. Uh, a guy uh, by the name of Bloomberg. Today, I'm glad to announce that I am running for president to defeat Donald Trump and to unite and rebuild America. Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg, former mayor of New York. And, and John, he's already set the record, the all-time record for one, one week's worth of ad spending, $37 million being spent, beating the record set by Hillary Clinton in the final week of the 2016 campaign already, and, just And that's now. because he's going heavily into New Hampshire and Iowa, right? He wants to really make a you know, I mean, he wants to knock this out, knock out punch early. Is that right? Wrong again. Wrong again, John. He's doing something that something else that, that has never been done before, which is skip all of the early states and make it all about Super Tuesday, the California and Texas and Virginia and all of the big states that vote starting in March. He wants to sit out all of February, and he's already spending a lot of money to do it. All right, I, I, first of all, I'm intrigued by the uh, by the Bloomberg campaign, and I think it's going to. I think it may. I, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch, and I. Uh, I am not dismissive of the idea that he can come in this late uh, and, and, and win the nomination, obviously an uphill battle. But I have to say, uh, before we get to you know what, why I think there's actually an interesting case to be made here for Mike Bloomberg, um, it does remind me of another former mayor of New York City who tried to run for president and decided he could skip the early states and just wait. In that case, it was wait for Florida where all those New Yorkers, you know, uh, you know, move down uh, to, to, to escape the cold weather. Do you remember that guy? It is called the Rudy Giuliani strategy. And of course, it didn't work for him in 2007, 2008. He, though, the, the big difference, because I've asked Bloomberg people about this, the big difference is money. Well, yeah, that and that is a big difference. Rudy did it because he ran out of money. Bloomberg is doing it because he has unlimited money. Yeah, he right, can spend a right, right. billion dollars on this campaign, and that represents about 2% of his net worth. Rudy Giuliani was forced into that. And it's much different now for Michael Bloomberg. But 
he still comes in with a lot of liabilities. This is still a guy who, by the way, stood alongside Rudy Giuliani, yeah. uh, probably wouldn't have been mayor of New York if not for Rudy's endorsement, and then was still a Republican all the way through the 2004 election when he endorsed George W. Bush. Okay, so let's let's talk through that part of it, uh, the Rudy Giuliani of it. So as you know, I used to cover New York politics. Yeah. I was once a city hall reporter when that when, when Giuliani uh, was, was mayor, and there, there's so many – Amazing things about New York politics. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned the kind of, you know, the Bloomberg Republican Giuliani, the president's, you know, hatchet man who actually endorsed Mario Cuomo for governor. I mean, there's a lot of strange things about New York politics. But you said something that, that I, I, I'm going to say I think is exactly true, which is Mike Bloomberg would never have been mayor of New York if it were not for Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani endorsed Mike Bloomberg and then Mike Bloomberg spent roughly a zillion dollars airing television commercials of that Giuliani endorsement. And I'm just wondering if somebody's going to break out one of those commercials, one of his opponents, and just run it again. Just run um, it yeah, entirely, just, just, yeah. Just, just, just run it again. Um, and, and somebody pointed out, um, um, uh, our former colleague uh, Tara Palmieri actually tweeted about this, uh, a, a, a little screenshot of, of this opening ad by, uh, by Bloomberg that if you if you freeze it and you zoom in, you see there's Giuliani. Oh, how about <laughs> it's, that? How about it's, that? It's a, it's a city hall, you know, a swearing in shot, and uh, and of course Giuliani is 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 there as Bloomberg is getting sworn in. But you know, no, just slightly different than the previous ads. Yeah, that, that's um, post nine eleven, Rudy, if, as, as we'll like to say. But look, the whole Bloomberg strategy is built on one big gamble. That gamble is that the Democrats will not get their stuff together and that it's going to be a mess of an early primary process. I will be the only candidate in this race who isn't going to take a penny from anyone and will work for a dollar a year, just as I did for 12 years in New York City Hall. As a candidate, I'll rally a broad and diverse coalition to win. And as president, I'll have the skills to fix what is broken in our great nation. And there is a lot broken. So let me run this through, because you're the expert on this stuff, uh, Rick. So I'm looking just as an outside observer at at how this primary is playing out. And I'm seeing Pete Buttigieg uh, surging in Iowa. Uh, You know, Elizabeth Warren doing well in Iowa as well. So so let's say Buttigieg wins Iowa. Maybe even Warren comes in second. I don't know. Biden's like a third place or I don't know. I mean, it's it's a, you know, who knows? He could be fourth, yeah. He could be fourth. Then we we move to uh, New Hampshire and Elizabeth Warren... And actually, Bernie Sanders, they're both neighbors, as I remember in my geography. Um, and uh, so let's say Elizabeth Warren wins in uh, in New Hampshire. Then uh, we go out to Nevada, and that's 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 looks a little bit like Bernie Sanders yeah. territory to me. So Bernie Sanders wins. Uh, and then uh, we finally get to South Carolina, and then maybe – Maybe the former vice president pulls out a win. Uh, that's the way it would look certainly, now anyway. Certainly leading in the polls. So you've got the four states. You've got uh, Buttigieg, Warren, Sanders, uh, and uh, and Joe Biden winning four of the four. I mean, come on. That's known as the that's known as the kids soccer game scenario where everyone gets a trophy. Yeah. And in that scenario, where you, if you had four different winners of the first four states, uh, then you go national. And who is has the capacity to run that national campaign? Who's already been running that national campaign? Who has already been blanketing the airwaves so that no matter where you live in this country, you're seeing even this week 
a presidential campaign ad, that's Mike Bloomberg. That's the only way that I can see this working because if anyone gets any momentum out of those first early primary states, ask Rudy Giuliani how that works. You're not part of the news. You're not part of the conversation. Normal circumstances, your money would dry up. He is the one who could come in late and and clean things up for a messy early start for Democrats. And I would also say that what this does, even if it doesn't work for Bloomberg, is it seems to be a big problem for Joe Biden. Yeah, because because yeah. Biden, in, again, in that scenario, loses the first three states and maybe maybe he pulls something off. But I mean, you know, he, it's not, not implausible that he loses those first three states, has to win uh, South Carolina and is hoping that that momentum propels him. But if, if that if he is, you know, meets up after a win in South Carolina with, you know, Bloomberg basically making the same argument that Biden is making, I mean, it's an electability argument. It's a it's a it's a more moderate argument. It seems to me that that it's a big problem for Biden. And I think it even hurts Biden in the short term because this is a moment in the campaign where people are having concerns about Joe Biden. Can he go the distance? Is he the guy to take on President Trump? And Mike Bloomberg, who came really close to running, I guess almost every cycle, but certainly this cycle, six months ago, eight months ago, he was ready to go. They had they were ready to hit send on a on a presidential campaign, and he pulled back because it looked at the moment like Joe Biden was going to be the guy. He's a there's a comfort level that he has with Joe Biden as opposed to the Warren and Bernie Sanders wing of the party. I don't know his opinions on Mayor Pete Buttigieg, but I think South Bend, Indiana, is smaller than New York City, so I think we can solve that pretty quickly. Yeah, it's about the size of Chelsea, right? It's <laughs> right, a couple of neighborhoods, yeah. and so. If you're Mike Bloomberg, your entry is being viewed as a statement about Joe Biden in the here and now and, yes, a threat to your candidacy down the road. Now, is is Mike Bloomberg the answer to a question that Democrats are asking in 2019 and 2020? I'm not sure of that. Uh, He is not a liberal, certainly not progressive by the standards of the party right now. You saw his apology on stop and frisk. That's a huge hot button in minority communities. It was as this time as mayor. It's only gotten to be more so. Ask his successor, uh, Bill de Blasio, about his record. He'll say this is a guy that's just far out of step with but, with but, the Democratic but, but Party. But they want to win. Uh, de- Democrats yeah. want to win. And, and he's certainly uh, there with the progressives of the party on on two issues that are that are very important. I mean, uh, certainly uh, uh, guns and climate change. Yes. Um, you know, he's, and he's put his money there, too. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and and, uh, you know, I think if he can make the argument that, that I've got a record, uh, I, uh, you know, help turn around New York City. Um, I am going to put together a, a, a coalition that we, we need to uh, to take on Donald Trump. And we I mean, I, I think it's an interesting I mean, look, well, let me ask you just a couple and then, and then I want to get to to uh, to what's happening on the impeachment front. And uh, we've got our we've got our guest here. Uh, but first of all, is Bloomberg going to be in the debates? I know he won't be in the uh, in the next debate because he, you know, we have this criteria of the number of donors as well as right. uh, you're, you're, pl- you're standing in the polls and he is not raising money at all. So he's not, not going to have enough donors. Um, but is he going to be in debates come January? I, I think January is a question. February and beyond, I think probably yes, if, he, if he's able to get his polling numbers up. So, 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 so what, are the, what are the – and when do the rules change? Because right now we have this, the, the, the right. dual criteria of number of donors and, and standing in the polls. When well, do the rules change? We haven't heard the, the January rules yet from the Democratic National Committee. But in the past, the rules for debates uh, once the voting has started has always incorporated a couple of things. One has been actual voting results. 
because you have voters already starting to weigh in. And the other has been national and state level polling. And so there's always been a, a number of ways to, to gain a ticket. The Democrats started this cycle with this idea of grassroots uh, uh, thresh, fundraising thresholds, a number of donor thresholds to try to capture the energy of additional candidates that, that might be more traditional. The Andrew Yangs and the Marianne Williamsons who wouldn't normally be polling right away. Uh, and instead, but, it, instead it made room for guys like Tom Steyer who uh, could buy donors could buy their way, buy their way. $8 now, to buy a single $1 you know, contribution. That's right. Mike Bloomberg is deciding not to do that. He could get donations. Um, he's not soliciting them. Uh, but if people buy Bloomberg hats at sufficient uh, uh, sufficient rate, that will count as donations, uh, technically speaking. But that's not his way in. I think his way in is if the Democrats, starting when the voting begins, take into account national polls to get your get yourself a ticket. And if he's able to buy himself up to five or six or eight percent, then I don't know how you keep him off the stage. But I'll tell you, the Bloomberg team says that those debates are not critical to their strategy. They're not making a big noise about being left out. They also realize he could probably try to qualify under the old way of, of getting grassroots donors if he wanted to. They like the signal that he sends that he is actually not accepting donations, period. Okay. Well, um, now, uh, just to change topics, we're going to take a quick break. We have Neil Cotiel, who I think uh, knows as much as much about and has looked at, in, into the impeachment process and what we are up against right now and what this is going to look like as, as anybody. But what interests me right now is what is happening in the courts because I believe that one of the legacies of the Trump presidency, the Trump era, will be a series of precedent-setting cases at the Supreme Court that will live far beyond Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, legal scholars will be studying for years um, and, and will affect the way uh, future presidents and future congresses uh, deal with really critical issues. The big one, I mean, there are a number of them. We, we, we have the, the, the tax, uh, the, the, the efforts to get Trump's uh, tax returns. Right. Um, that, that, that's obviously big in a narrow political sense, but also there are some serious precedents there. And this Don McGahn case. Yeah, and, and by the way, I'm going to add another one: the the um, uh, uh, the uh, Freedom of Information Act uh, uh, case we just see where now uh, a judge has ordered the administration to turn over some 200 pages of documents related to this decision to um, withhold aid uh, from Ukraine. But but this gets to questions of the public right to know, disclosure, Congress's right, uh, the power of subpoena. The limits of executive privilege. These are some fascinating issues. And they're not just abstract, of course, because it comes in the midst of this uh, growing battle over impeachment. And the, the, the McGahn case is connected to that. That FOIA case also connected to that. The question in my mind, we'll ask Neil about it in a few minutes, is is how it fits into the, the, the Democrats' playbook for this because they're moving pretty quickly on impeachment. All right. Let's take a very quick break and we will be back with our guest in just a moment. Hey, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Neil Katyal. Uh, thank you for joining us, former acting Solicitor General of the United States and somebody who has argued, of course, before the Supreme Court and knows a thing or two about impeachment because, Rick, he's got a book. He's got a book. Impeach, the case against Donald Trump. Uh, Neil, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I actually don't want to ask you right away about the case against Donald Trump. I want to ask you about something that interests me um, Maybe more, at least in terms of, of the long-term uh, impact on the way the way our government functions. Um, that is the, the precedent-setting cases that we see now working their way working their way through the court. Um, and and let's let's start with this Don McGahn case. I mean, we correct me if I'm wrong, but we we have we do not have a uh, a solid 
uh, precedent on the limits of executive privilege. How is that? Yeah, so I wrote about this as a scholar when I, you know, when I taught at Georgetown. Uh, executive privilege is something that presidents have as a resource, and it's got to be, you know, husbanded. And presidents, at least good presidents, are really careful about asserting executive privilege because of a risk that courts will trim it back and hurt a future president who's going to need it. And so that's why, you know, President Obama, who only invoked executive privilege once in his eight years, was just so careful about that and why we at the Justice Department really took that so seriously, that it was a sacred trust to try and preserve the realm of executive privilege for circumstances that truly need it. And here now you've got a president that claims executive privilege like he's dispensing candy. It's just left and right. I mean, it's, you know, he's now said that nobody can testify in the impeachment proceedings at all or provide any document whatsoever. And so it's no surprise that you get a decision like the one yesterday from Judge Jackson, who says, you know, look, there are no kings in America. No one is above the law. The American public you know, have a right to at least some of this evidence. I mean, she didn't say all of it. It's going to be, you know, determined on a case-by-case basis. But the president's kind of sweeping assertions are just um, are both wrong but also counterproductive for people who care about executive power, and I'm one of them because I do think that we need to have a strong presidency. Uh, you know, what Trump is doing is destroying it. Um, he has made it so that the claims of executive power look unprincipled, uncalibrated, and un-American. And that's because his claims are so broad. Okay, so this was a district court uh, a judge, obviously. Uh, we, we had, a, we, we had a, a, another district court case under, under President Bush. But have we, has, has the Supreme Court ever ruled on executive privilege? Sure. I mean, the Nixon tapes case is, is the most famous uh, example in which uh, Nixon tried to hide his tapes uh, from the Congress and the uh, Supreme Court unanimously said, ah, oh, you don't get to do that. These tapes have to be turned over. And that was true, even though three of the justices who sat on that case were actually appointed by President Nixon. They went and did the right thing. And, you know, I do think that's a very important way for your listeners to be thinking about our federal judiciary. I mean, I know President Trump, like Kellyanne Conway, went on today and said, oh, this was an Obama judge or something like that, as if that somehow, you know, should be meaningful. But we have, you know, as the Chief Justice said last year, just judges. They're not Obama judges or Trump judges. Yeah, and, you know, while he's tried to denigrate it, uh, I think these judges are going to do their job. And if Trump assert- keeps claiming these ridiculous notions of executive privilege, he's going to get smacked down. Okay, so the Nixon case was regarding uh, the, whether or not he had to turn over the tapes. But on this question Correct. of uh, White House advisors, presidential advisors, being forced to testify, has the Supreme Court weighed in on that? No, because, again, presidents pull back and don't try and bring those cases for the reasons that we were talking about earlier. So the decision you're referring to was Judge Bates, a very, very respected judge in D.C., who said Harriet Myers, who was then President Bush's White House counsel, had to 
testify. And that decision was uh, it wasn't appealed up because I think an accommodation was reached at that time. And that's the way normally these things work, resolve themselves that way. This president, by contrast, filed an appeal right away within moments of the decision, not even bothering to really read it. So, so this president may end up by uh, uh, defining executive privilege in such a broad way um, and, f- and signaling the, the, the willingness to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, depending on, on where this goes, this was a very strong opinion. Uh, uh, depending on where this goes, the legacy of Donald Trump could be to severely narrow uh, the, 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 this power of executive privilege. That's exactly right. I think that is the ultimate consequence of these absurd arguments that President Trump will be to weaken executive power. And the question you got to ask is, why? Why is he so risky, willing to risk this fundamental diminution in something which he as president has to appreciate the need to have a swift, powerful, often secret executive branch? And the only reason that comes to my mind is he's got a lot to hide. And that's why he's gagged every White House employee, every executive branch employee from testifying to the Congress and telling the truth and gagged them from providing any documents, any emails or the like. And, you know, the last two weeks we had all these witnesses come forward, I think 12 witnesses, but they all did so in defiance of the president's order, even though they're Trump administration employees. They've come in and told the truth to Congress, risking violating the president's gag order. So, Neil Neil Kasha, what is your best handicapping of how the Supreme Court is likely to handle these these cases, these critical cases, as they relate to the impeachment inquiry? And how quickly would you reasonably expect to see resolution of the cases? I I assume you think that they're going to rule favorably in terms of the Democrats' arguments, but how quickly could it all happen? Well, so first of all, there's a variety of different cases and things that are going to you know, that possibly could go to the Supreme Court. Impeachment itself will never go to the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court in a case involving uh, Nixon, Walter Nixon, the judge, no relation to the president, uh, the Supreme Court ruled that they have no role in impeachment proceedings whatsoever. So the only rule will that will be had is the chief justice presiding Presiding. over the Senate impeachment trial, uh, but nothing else. Now, then there are these other buckets of cases that are working their way through. One, we've been talking about the McGahn case. I think that could go very quickly to the Court of Appeals of the Supreme Court. As I say, I don't think it should, because I think there's not much demerit to what the president's saying, but he's already said he wants to appeal to the circuit. I suspect the House will say, okay, if you want to appeal, but you got a week or something to brief, and let's have oral argument within 10 days. Uh, and it should go very fast. And then the, the loser could ask the Supreme Court to hear the case. I suspect the loser will be President Trump, and he can ask the Supreme Court to hear it. They don't have to hear it. And indeed, I think that there's a very strong chance they won't, because, as I say, the arguments by Trump are so weak. Then there are these tax return cases, which the Supreme Court has temporarily pause the financial records of the president, both in coming out cases out of D.C. and New York. Again, I suspect that there'll be a pretty good reason for the courts to just not take those cases. The lower courts, I think, have ruled in a pretty narrow, very solid way in saying the information has to be turned over to 
investigators uh, and not necessarily to the American public, but to investigators. And I would not be shocked to see those cases not not being taken up by the Supreme Court either. So if you're the Democrats now, Neil, and, and obviously you watched the hearings these last couple of weeks, you literally wrote the book on impeachment that's out right now. What's your best play? Do they have enough without the testimony of not just McGahn, who probably isn't the biggest player right now, but also John Bolton, Mick Mulvaney? Do they, do they wait to see the courts litigate that and potentially strengthen their hand? Or do they have enough to pull the trigger right now today, go move ahead with articles of impeachment? So I wrote the book Impeach because I think they absolutely have enough right now to let that uh, to to impeach the president uh, and to seek his removal. And the rest, whether it's Bolton or Mulvaney or just gravy. And I think that the Democrats are right to say, look, we're not going to wait and hold up the American people's judgment because there's more evidence. And we know there's more evidence, but we're not going to wait. Uh, for that, uh, to to have that. Uh, But at the same time, they could invoke some legal processes. They could try and subpoena. They could start the court process. Or they have one other alternative in their back pocket, which is to say and wait for the Senate trial. Because in the Senate trial, the, uh, the House managers who will be seeking impeachment will have subpoena powers, and they can subpoena Bolton, they can subpoena Mulvaney, uh, you know, they can subpoena, subpoena Kupperman and the people like that, Pompeo. So they have another option available to them in the Senate. But absolutely, you know, the whole point of my book is to say the evidence right now is overwhelming, and it's core impeachment. It's not the th- stuff with Mueller, which is complicated and the like. This is literally why impeachment is in the Constitution. When you go back to Philadelphia in 1787 and the founders, why did they put it in? They said they put it in because they're worried about someone, a president who would cheat and seek help from a foreign government, including in his election prospects. Now, will will Republicans be able to do what people like Lindsey Graham are now uh, uh, talking about? Will they be able to call witnesses that are not part of this core case? Will they be able to? I mean, uh, now they want Joe Biden on the on the on the floor of a, of a Senate trial. Uh, Hunter Biden. Yes. Uh, all the, are they going to be able to do that? Well, they'll be able to have the same subpoena power. And yes, obviously, there'll be some sort of relevance test. And so far, it's, it's not too clear what the relevance is uh, of, of the Bidens. But if they can make a case that they're was a legitimate good faith investigation of the Bidens that was going on here, uh, you know, and it's just it's, then they, they will have the ability to do that. It's a tough argument because the president wasn't claiming to, to seek, a, you know, what is an ordinary law enforcement investigation, which is confidential. He was seeking, as his own guy, Ambassador Sunland said last week, he just wanted the Ukrainians to announce it the kind of tar and feather Biden, not to actually do the investigation. That I find, you know, I can't imagine any legitimate justification for something like that. But what will it take, a, a simple majority vote to uh, to approve a subpoena? Or how, how does that work? What, what would it take for the, for the Republicans to demand and get uh, uh, Joe Biden to testify? Yeah, I, I'm not sure about the... the formal process that it came to push and shove and and led to people like trying to object and so on. Uh, My guess is it will be decided by a majority vote, but I think the chief justice in the first instance will rule on any of those questions. And, and, you know, I suspect that uh, members of the Senate are not going to really want to 
disagree and tangle and try and overrule the Chief Justice of the United States. Right. Neil, before we let you go, I'm curious of your take on how the public appears to have digested all of this. I, there's some conflicting polls on this, but I think the, the best that can be said about the Democrats' case is that it didn't really help or hurt uh, in terms of public perceptions. The Democrats have been clear on this. This is a political process. Impeachment is inherently political. Unless you have bipartisan support, you know how the, this this ball game is going to end. How do you view that argument in light of what you've laid out in your book and the evidence that continues to emerge? Is this worth going down if you know how the movie's going to end? Absolutely. So first of all, you know, I, I just fundamentally disagree with this Republican talking point that the public's made up their mind and that we know. I don't think we know. We're at chapter one in this investigation. Two months ago, nobody even knew anything about this. And you're already seeing popular opinion shift a little bit, but we're still at the very beginning. It's the Senate and the trial in which the eyes of America will really be watching. And, you know, if you think about even President Nixon, his support going into impeachment, both in Congress and among Republicans, was exceptionally strong. And then all of a sudden it crumbled. And, you know, I'm sick and tired of this mis- this underestimating of the American people um, that we hear about all the time. You know, I just think about all so many key moments in our history, whether it's 1776 or 1787 or 1863, or the civil rights movement, uh, in which we've gone beyond and transcended the politics of the day. Now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe impeachment fails or the removal of the president fails. I'd say it's still really important to go down this, uh, this path and set a marker for what behavior we expect of our presidents. I mean, in the book, and I'll conclude with this, but I wrote the book and said, you know, the beginning of the book says, look, there's a real simple test which we use for our law students because everyone has biases, but justice is supposed to be blind. And, you know, Lady Justice, the statue is blind. So that simple test is just flip the identity of the parties and ask yourself, would you feel the same way? So ask yourself, if President Obama did what President Trump is alleged to do, secretly try and get help and cheat in an election with the help of a foreign government. How would you feel if Obama did that? I think there's only one answer to that. And I think that's why, you know, we have to go down this road. We have no choice. It is literally the core duty of our Congress and indeed of the American people to be watching Congress as they ask these hard questions. All right, Neil Katyal, author of Impeach, the Case Against Donald Trump. Thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Thank you. And we'll talk to you again soon. Take care. So, so Rick, I, I, I think you make some, uh, some, a very strong case that this is uh, the kind of thing the founders envisioned when they were talking about an impeachment process. I also think that the question you were asking was not a Republican talking point, but a, a, a fundamental one as well, which is, you know, this is a political process as we've talked about over and over again. That means public opinion matters. And I also keep coming back to what Nancy Pelosi said back in March of this year when she said that, that, that impeachment had to be overwhelmingly, she said, not just bipartisan, but overwhelmingly bipartisan. Um, and it's astounding but true that there is no indication of any breaking of the ranks among Republicans in Congress. Zero. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that was a major takeaway of the hearings last week is that for everything that happened in Gordon Sondland and Fiona Hill and all of this, in, in Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, all this like really compelling testimony, all pointing in the same direction, you didn't have any Republicans saying this is actually impeachable. And you could easily see no Republicans supporting in the House and none in the Senate on conviction. I think Mitt Romney's concerns may be overstated in this as well. And, and look, Democrats were hoping for more than that, even though they, they kind of played a perfect game last week. You couldn't have expected much more out of what they got. But they, they expected, certainly got what they wanted. They got yeah. what they wanted almost every day. They built the case. Adam Schiff really did a masterful job in terms of laying this out. He, but the Republicans continued to surround the president. That's what and makes, public opinion didn't change. And public opinion does not appear, at least in the early polling we've seen, to have, to have changed significantly. Now, look, going in at the beginning of last week, we had 70 percent of the country saying something was done that was wrong and right. only 51 percent supporting impeachment uh, and removal in our poll. But that doesn't appear to have become an overwhelming number of 70 percent in terms of impeachment and removal. That's to me, it makes these court challenges sort of interesting because you at least have the possibility of the judicial branch stepping in and saying, wait a second, this isn't being handled right. There has to be more information, more documents that have to be forthcoming, uh, more testimony from key officials. You've got John Bolton out there publicly saying that he's got a story to tell about the president, uh, whether he tells it in book form or testimony mm-hmm. form or tweet he's form. He's definitely going to tell it. He'll definitely tell it. So I, it, it, it's an interesting curveball that at this moment, the judicial branch could hold so many of the keys. Uh, and I think what Neil Katyal said, another interesting point he makes about the way the reticence of the courts to get involved in this, particularly the Supreme Court, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, who does not want to be known as someone who vastly expanded uh, the uh, the reach of the judiciary in any way, shape or form. He wants an apolitical judiciary. He would love to see a compromise. He'd love to see lower courts work this out in a way that the Supreme Court doesn't have to get involved. None of that, though, appears likely as the White House pushes forward with his very aggressive legal strategy. Now, Neil's argued some almost 40 cases before the Supreme Court. He, he, he knows this stuff. And I just want to highlight before we go two, two things he said uh, that, that were interesting. First of all, the idea that this executive privilege, which has really never been tested at the Supreme Court. I mean, you obviously had the Nixon tapes case, but, but not, not in the way that we've, we've seen it applied, you know, whether or not advisors to the president can testify on things relate, related to the advice that they offered the president. It's something we take as kind of an article of faith. You know, the uh, executive, executives of both parties uh, in, invoke this. Um, but the idea that this test has been avoided by presidents in both parties who have wanted to strike a compromise before it went to the uh, court out of fear that this privilege would be narrowed, weakened. Right. Um, so I think that's that's very you know he he's suggesting that 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 is going to be an outcome here. So the the president that that used executive privilege in its broadest possible way may be the one that ends up narrowing that power. The other thing he said is he did not expect the court would actually take up the two cases regarding the president's tax returns. Remember, the district attorney in New York City has uh, you know, has the case demanding eight years of tax returns. Uh, the Oversight Committee in the House, House and, the, and, means, and the Ways yeah. and Means Committee have both uh, demanded the same. That was this decision that that, that, that just came down or the stay. Um, but if ultimately the court does not take up those cases, that means that the tax returns 
get released. Have to get turned over. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And doesn't necessarily mean they go public, by the way, because the you know it's one is a criminal right. proceeding. Uh, the other, the, the, the committees have not said that they're going to you know release them. They want them for their oversight. You'd think they probably would be, but but that's that's very interesting, and that could happen soon. And it could play into criminal proceedings that are going on uh, at a couple of different levels, including at the local level, also the Southern District of New York, which continues to make noise about business dealings around Rudy Giuliani in very significant ways. It's possible to Neil's question about what the president is trying to hide here. It's possible that that he is just protecting constitutional principles and trying to avoid uh, precedent setting Theories and uh, and new new concepts that would affect and bind future presidents. It's also possible that he is really worried about what these documents and what that testimony would show about himself in the here and now, as it relates to impeachment and as it relates to potential criminal probes. On that note, recline. That's all the time we have for powerhouse politics. A special thanks. Uh, to Trevor Hastings, who's been working extremely hard on this uh, on this podcast, and we appreciate his efforts. What's his title now? Senior Executive Puba. Senior Executive Puba. Uh, have a great Thanksgiving, and we will see you next week.